contest with the prophets of Baal actually had begun uh, three and a half years before when Elijah had appeared to Ahab right out of the blue. Mentioned last time, first time we'd ever heard of him or anybody had ever heard of him. There he was telling Ahab, it's not going to rain again until I say it will. And then he left. And he looked for him everywhere, couldn't find him because, as we know, he was off outside the land of Canaan at uh, a place called Zarephath where there was a widow. And she was taking care of him through that time. And then ultimately he came back again and said, here I am, and uh, called for the contest of the prophets of Baal. We've talked about how that came out, and that was uh, obviously a great victory for the Lord. The people even said, the Lord, he is God, when the fire came down from heaven and burned up the Lord's uh, sacrifice. Uh, So rain had been the promise. That was a direct challenge to what they believed about Baal because he was the god of fertility and that meant he was the one who caused it to rain because that's what fertility uh, depended on in, in, this, in this land of Palestine. So uh, uh, it was not going to rain and it didn't rain and things got terribly dry, uh, ter- terribly uh, famine-wise because there was no food could be, could be uh, grown during during that time when there was great drought. And so now Elijah shows up. He defeats the prophets of Baal. And then Elijah said to Ahab, this is chapter 18, verse 41, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And on the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Uh, That's remarkable. Uh, I'm sure that God had assured Abraham, (laughs) Abraham, God had assured Elijah that uh, uh, he could say that about rain. It wouldn't rain. I'm sure he had that assurance from the Lord. And I'm sure he knew also that when he said to rain, it would rain. That obviously was being done in complete faith. And uh, Abraham obviously had, Elijah obviously had some assurance from God that 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 would happen. But before he saw a cloud, he prayed seven times to the Lord. Uh, There are several parables, several instances like this one that tell us that the Lord desires persistence in prayer. Uh, He says, ask and it will be given you. So that tells us he wants us to ask. We could say and we'd be right. Why do you have to ask? God knows already what we want and what we need and what we're going to ask for. That's true. But he still wants us to ask. And he obviously wants us to be persistent. Even Elijah wasn't heard until he had prayed the seventh time for God to bring rain and the little cloud 
appeared. Uh, two of the most remarkable parables in the New Testament have that same lesson. One of them is a parable about an unjust judge who was hearing from a widow, and her cause was right, but normally he didn't pay any attention to what cause was right. He paid attention to who paid the biggest bribe, and uh, this widow couldn't do that. But she knocked on his door regularly. Uh, when he tried to wake up and eat breakfast in the morning, she was there knocking on his door, telling him to decide the case in my favor. Uh, she kept that up day and night until finally he said something like this. He said, if I don't solve this, you just solve this case in this widow's favor, she's going to worry me to death. And so he did. Now, God's not an unjust judge, but nevertheless, he used that to tell us that we need to be persistent in prayer. Don't need to give up after one time, but, but keep on praying. A very similar parable is about a man who uh, had a guest in the middle of the night and wasn't ready to help him. Uh, the background of that is, and this is the background of several things in the Bible that you will see and maybe remember, uh, it, it was a, a serious, recognized duty of any kind of courtesy. That if a stranger came to you in the night, you took him in and you fed him. Uh, that just had to be. And if you didn't do that, you were the lowest of the low. And so because of that pressure, this man had nothing to feed the man. He went next door. It was already past daylight, past nighttime, and he was asleep. And he knocked on his door and said, give me some uh, bread to feed this visitor that I have. The man said, go away. I'm, I've already gone to bed. The kids are already asleep. Uh, I don't want to wake them up. Uh, call me again in the morning. And he knocked on the door again and said, I've got to have something to eat to feed this man who's come in. And finally, after a great deal of persistence, the man said, well, I'm not going to get any sleep anyway. I might as well get up and get it for him. And so he did. And again, the Lord told that parable to remind us to be persistent when we ask God for something. If we feel like it's the thing that's right, if we believe we're praying in accordance with the will of God, then don't give up after one or two or three or six times. But pray on, and Elijah did, till the seventh time. And then the servant saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising up out of the sea. It's been pointed out this is not a miracle, uh, other than it happened when Elijah said for it to happen. But where did rain normally come from? Well, it normally comes from clouds. And when this clouds showed up, that was a sign that there might be going to be rain. And Elijah took it that way and continued to pray, and the cloud got bigger and bigger and blacker and blacker, and then rain began to fall, and God and, and Elijah told Ahab, get on your chariot and get home. <laughs> You're going to get wet. And Ahab got his chariot and went home. The last verse of what we just read said that uh, Elijah gathered up his clothes and ran after him and kept up with the chariot. And got there just as, as, as he did. Uh, again, a number of times you'll read in the Bible, they girded up their loins. Uh, what, what that means is, normally men wore something that was more like a dress than, than, than trousers. Uh, and uh, uh, you women know how hard it is to run in a long dress. <laughs> You've got to pull it up above your knees at least if you're going to run very fast. And uh, so that's what these men are doing. They're gathering up their long clothes, tucking it under their belt, gird up your loins, tucking it under their belt, 
so that they can run more freely. And Elijah did that, and he got back to Jezreel about the same time that, uh, that Ahab did. Uh, then Jezebel threatens Elijah. We talked about this a little bit last time. Chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the God do to me also and more if I do not make your life like one of them by, the time, by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Uh, he was afraid of Jezebel with good cause. She had armies and uh, others to help her, and she was going to seek his life. And uh, here's an oath uh, that she prayed. If more, God would do more to me, do this to me and more also. I think she's talking about as you kill the uh, prophets of Baal, Lord, do that to me and more if I do not uh, kill you by this time tomorrow. Uh, I've often wondered how those vows come about when they're not able to do what they intended to do. I think of the time when uh, Paul was uh, arrested by the Romans and there were a group of uh, Jews who were after him and they gathered together and swore neither to eat nor to drink until they had killed Paul. Well, they must be getting hungry by now uh, because they never did kill him. And I don't, know what to, I don't know what you do in a vow like that if you don't get done what you promised to do. Uh, but anyway, the same is true here of, of Jezebel. Uh, she planned to do to him just as he had done to the prophets of Baal uh, before that day was, was over. Then chapter 19, verse 4. But he himself, that's Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. King James Version says a juniper tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is going to be too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about all the times and all the things that took place 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, I'm tentatively thinking about a conclusion that says that's not a literal thing you're supposed to count, but it's an indication of a significant amount of time and a sufficient amount of time. Maybe wrong about that, uh, but... Uh, uh, it's hard to see how one cake and one drink of water could fortify uh, Elijah with enough food uh, to get uh, 40 days and 40 nights to another place. I understand God could make that happen. That, that may indeed be what happens in all of those instances. 
Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Sometimes it says things like that. They neither ate nor drank for 40 days and 40 nights. You can live without food 40 days, but you can't live without drink 40 days. Usually five or six is the limit of, of anybody without some kind of, of, of liquid nourishment. So I, I'm not going to answer all the questions about it because I don't know the answer to all the questions about it. But there's so many things that were 40 days and 40 nights. And some of them are impossible unless God had simply intervened and made it possible on that occasion, which obviously could have happened. But I'm just beginning to wonder if 40 days and 40 nights is not more of a symbolism that says a long time and a sufficient amount of time. That may or may not be true. I'll just drop that. Let's see. Uh, Brother G.P. Holt was a great black gospel preacher. And I remember one time he was in the middle of preaching and stopped and said, "What? Well, by the way, while I'm flying over this territory, let me just drop this bomb, <laughs> which was sort of a sideline he wanted to put out, and so he did. Uh, so I just dropped this bomb for, for what it's worth to you and let you know that I haven't come to any conclusion about that, but I have been thinking about it. Uh, do you know any discouraged preachers? I've met a few. Uh, been one on some rare occasions, and uh, Elijah was one. Uh, he was lonely. He was down there in the midst of a uh, uh, hiding place, and no one was around him. A little bit later, he'll say, I and I alone am left, and they're trying to kill me. And God had to tell him, no, Elijah, you're not the only one left. I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. I think we need that kind of encouragement uh, because it's tough to think I'm the only one who's serving God correctly. But I have to admit there's somewhat of a temptation to that. If you think a lot, if you try to be balanced, you try to see the wrong of the on both sides and you end up right where you think is just the right way and most everybody else you know is farther to the right or farther to the left it's very easy to get a complex man I'm the only one who sees it right and, and that's not a not a thing to boast about that's a thing to feel bad about uh, but uh, whenever you get to that way we need to remember Elijah no I got 7,000 you don't know about that's still faithful to me uh, what do you do with a discouraged preacher well, I think, number one, you feed him. And the angel has already done that. God sent his angel and gave him food. Number two, you encourage him. He thinks he's the only one. No, you tell him you're not the only one. There are many, many that I've got that are faithful servants that are still uh, serving me and, and, and serving me uh, correctly. And number three, you give him a job. And that's what happens next in... Uh, uh, 1 King 19, beginning with verse 9. He came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and stormy wind came and tore the mountains and broke the rock pieces of the rocks before the Lord. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, there was a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He'd already asked that once. Now he asked it again. And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. People of Israel have forsaken your covenant. He knew they were talking to the Lord. Thrown down your altar and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only... Am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abed-Molech, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one, who had escaped, the one who escaped from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that are not about to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. There's no better palliative, no, no, no better remedy for most of our ills, including discouragement, including come to think I'm the only one left to do anything worthwhile than to be given a job. And here, after giving him food, after encouraging him that there are many, many more that you don't know about, he said, go do this. And uh, Elijah got up to do it. And often when you get up to do a job, you forget about your worries. You you forget about your discouragements. And you, you go do the job that's been given to you. This was quite a remarkable job. Uh, Haziel was not king of Syria. Jehu was not king of Judah, of Israel rather. And, uh, uh, and Elijah was the prophet and he didn't have somebody to follow him. And yet God told him, anoint each of these as, uh, as officially theirs. And we'll see in the future as he goes on to do that, that oftentimes the prophet anointing this one to be king of that one put that in their mind. And so they gathered up what was necessary and assassinated the one that was then king and took took his place. Uh, Interestingly, Elijah immediately went and and, uh, chose Elisha, as he directed, to take his place and indicated that he was to be uh, the next prophet. Uh, He laid his mantle, as we'll see, that is, his cloak over uh, Elisha, and then said, you're the one who will follow me and do God's will. And actually, Elisha was the one who did the other two things, anointing Haziel and anointing uh, Jehu. But uh, uh, Elijah, at direction of God, chose Elisha to uh, take his place. Uh, what lesson is there? I'm, I'm asking because I'm not sure I know myself. What lesson is there in the fact that the Lord came to speak to Elijah and he wasn't in the raging wind that tore up everything. He wasn't in the earthquake that broke up all the rocks. Uh, he wasn't in the fire that burned up whatever it came to. 
there was a still small voice, and that was the Lord speaking to Elijah. Uh, I don't know what all that says, but it is at least interesting. And uh, uh, God can do all kinds of spectacular things, but uh, maybe it's not the spectacular thing that is, after all, uh, his will uh, being spoken. At any rate, the still small voice told Elijah what to do, gave him a job to do, and Elijah got up to do it, and his discouragement uh, seemed to be, uh, to be over. Uh, comment on that, or any question by that, or any comment on uh, the, the wind, the fire, and the rest? Yes. That's a good point. And uh, for those of you who couldn't hear, uh, Brother Larry said it's amazing how often God works through that which is simple and disdains that which is uh, pomp and ceremony and all that sort of thing. He mentioned the fact that uh, elders and preachers are human beings. They don't dress up in robes and all of that sort of thing. Uh, uh, their job is simply to teach the gospel and to use the word of God. And uh, all of the uh, uh, other things that surround what other people try to do to make that more awesome is uh, just fluff. And God actually uses the simple to get his will done. That's a good point, a good lesson to draw from this. Uh, any other? Yes, sir. Long distance, especially the wall. Yeah. Chris uh, is reminding us that when uh, he left to get away from Jezebel, he ran for about 150 miles, which is a long way to go on foot. And again, God certainly must have helped him in some way to accomplish that. Good. Any other comment or question? Yes, sir. Like, like when uh, uh, the prophet Elisha told Naaman to go dip in the River Jordan seven times. That was too simple for, for, for Naaman. He thought he'd ought to do some great thing. Yes, sir. All right. <laughs> uh, and, and again, God works through the simple and not the complex. Uh, all right. Any other question or comment? Yes, ma'am.
Yeah. I'm sorry, but I'm having difficulty here. Let me get closer. All right. And that's a good point. Uh, Janice has mentioned the fact that he gave Elijah a job, actually three jobs, but before that he let Elijah sleep. And oftentimes when we're discouraged, he gave him food. So food and sleep may be the thing that we need uh, as well. And again, God is working through the simple and the things that uh, are not necessarily miraculous to get done uh, what he wants done. Good. Any other All right, let's see where that brings us to then. Uh, Let's go to chapter 19, verse 19. I believe that's where we left off. Uh, So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the tw- with, with and he was with he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah, and said, "Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you." And he said to him, "Go back again, for what have I done to you?" And he retired from following him and took the yoke of the oxen, and sanctified them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose, and went after Elisha, and assisted him. That's sort of like the man whom Jesus asked to follow me, and he said, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead, you follow me. But in this instance, it doesn't exactly tell us whether... Elijah, Elisha went back home and kissed his father and mother or not. It does tell us that he sacrificed the oxen that he was using to plow with, so obviously he wasn't going to plow with them anymore, and he used the yoke to, for the fire to burn up the burnt offering, and uh, uh, so he obviously was, was leaving the job that he had, uh, and, uh, and he followed after Elijah as Elijah had, had told him to do. So this is where Elijah, at the direction of God, chooses his own successor, and he is Elisha, known as Elisha, the son of Shaphat. In chapter 20, verse 1, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together, and two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers to the city, uh, to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, O Lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messenger came again and said, Thus says ben I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the house of your servants and lay hold on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark me, and we see how this man is seeking uh, trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and gold, and I did not refuse him. 
And all the elders and all the people said, Do not listen nor consent. So he sent to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you have first demanded of your servant, I will do this, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. And Ben-Hadad sent them and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself like he who takes it off. Uh, I like that last expression. It has sort of become a proverb among Bible students, at least, who know it. Uh, it it's a way of saying, uh, don't, don't count the game as one until you've played it. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and you put on your armor, of course, when you're getting ready to fight. You take it off when it's over. So that's the time for boasting when it's over and, and you've won. And to boast beforehand might be uh, premature. And uh, so Elisha tells Ben-Hadad that. And by the way, you see Ben-Hadad a lot through here. Uh, that's obviously a dynasty where all the kings are named that. Perhaps they're akin to each other. Or it may be like Pharaoh, more of a, of a title for the king, uh, whoever it is. But uh, that's probably the reason why you see Ben-Hadad scattered throughout uh, the kings of Assyria so long, because all of them uh, probably were known as, as, as Ben-Hadad. And when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in his booth, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. Uh, and behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. But Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governor of the districts. Then he said, Who will begin the battle? And he answered, You. Then he mustered up the armed servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And he went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booze. He and the 32 kings who helped him, the servants of the governors of the districts, went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him men who come out from Samaria. He said, if they come out for peace, take them alive, or if they've come out for war, take them alive. So they went out of the city, the servants of the governors, the districts of the army that followed him, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and smote the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. Uh, read that to say that, ben that Ahab is a... Uh, an interesting character in lots of ways. When you hear about Ahab in the, as king of, Is, of, of Israel, the Bible says over and over again that he was about one of the worst kings that ever ruled. Uh, he, uh, uh, he let Jezebel lead him around by the nose is what his problem was. And everything that Jezebel wanted him to do, he did. And it was all wrong. But Ahab obviously had some good traits and some good desire somewhere in his heart uh, to serve the Lord. 
For one thing, he had two sons. We'll run across them in a little bit. And both of them had names of uh, Jehovah, that, that, bear, that, that uh, glorified Jehovah and not uh, Baal. Uh, and uh, that's an indication that he thought well of, God, of Jehovah and, 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 and worshipped him. And uh, he uh, has two or three prophets, not Elijah or Elisha, but unnamed prophets generally, uh, who come to him and tell him what to do, and he does it, and he wins battles. Uh, so uh, uh, he's an enigma, is what I would say. An enigma is a, uh, a two-sided question that uh, you don't have any indication which one's right. But we know he was wicked, and you know he followed the advice of Jezebel and did wicked things. But we also know that he seemed to honor Jehovah the Lord, and he listened to their prophets and, and, and were victorious in a number of occasions because he listened to the Lord's uh, prophets. Uh, I wrote something the other day. I'm not sure this fits here, but uh, maybe it does. I wrote something the other day about uh, ben, uh, Barnabas. Barnabas was a good man. But when the, uh, Peter and the others left the, Jew, the, the Jewish Christians, left associating with the Gentile Christians and, because uh, some Jews had come up to them, uh, Peter led them and was rebuked by Paul, and the text says even Barnabas was carried away by their duplicity. So Barnabas was a good man, but that was an occasion where he did something he ought not to have done. There's an old poem that says there is so much bad in the best of us and so much good in the worst of us that it little behooves any of us to talk about the rest of us. And uh, although that has its limits, uh, that is so generally true. You don't find anybody who's perfect. And if you uh, don't like somebody, uh, you can find something imperfect about them to talk about and to try to convince others that he's not a good person. Uh, but uh, good people sometimes do things they ought not to. And interestingly, here in the case of Ahab, bad people do things sometimes that they ought to. And it makes it hard sometimes to know uh, who's good and who's bad. Thankfully, the Lord keeps up with that, and, uh, and he'll, he'll handle it correctly. Uh, question or comment about that? That's an interesting topic. We could talk all day about that, I guess. All right. Um, and the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills, and so they are stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we'll be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. And of course, that didn't work. Uh, this was a time when uh, each people basically had their gods, and their gods were powerful to help them. Uh, but uh, sometimes the other people's gods were more powerful, sometimes, sometimes not, according to their beliefs. And here, because uh, uh, Jehovah had worked well in the mountain, Mount Carmel, Mount other places, 
uh, they assumed that he was the god of the hills. And so let's fight in the, battle, in the valley so we can defeat him. And of course, God is not only the god of the hills, he's also the god of the valleys and the god of the whole earth and everything else. Uh, they missed that fact, and because of that, uh, they also lost the battle. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered up the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went up against them. And the people of Israel camped before them like flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God, that's a prophet unnamed, a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but not God of the valleys. Therefore I will take all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. So God's the God of the valleys as well as the God of the hills. God's the God of everything. And the... Uh, uh, the Syrians made a big mistake in, in thinking he was limited in his power uh, to one, one kind of, of topology. Uh, we understand God is everywhere and God reigns over everything. And there is no area where you can get away from the Lord and say he's not king here because he is king and, and power and uh, everywhere that he goes. Here's an interesting story. Ben-Hadad fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And the servant said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our head and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they put sackcloth around their waist and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men went searching for a sign, and they quick took him up and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came up to him, and he caused him to come up into his chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I'll restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Smite me, please, but the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you leave gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, the lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him, so the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant sent me into the midst of the battle. And behold, a soldier turned and wrote to me and said, Guard this man, and if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay by a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So after your judgment, so shall your judgment be, 
that you yourself have decided it. Then he took to him the bandage away from his eye, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the sons of the prophet, as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let out of your hand a man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to the house vexed, and 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 then vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. Uh, that's a story often told, and uh, preachers all the time use that uh, expression, when I was, while I was busy here and there, uh, he escaped. Uh, it's easy to get busy here and there when you've got a job to be done and let the job go undone. And that's uh, what happened here to uh, uh, the king of Israel. God had delivered and been headed into his hands. He had done so for the purpose of defeating him and putting him to death. And when uh, uh, Ahab let him go, uh, that was not pleasing to God, and therefore he said, you'll suffer uh, for, for that. And, uh, uh, and the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen because God told him, you're going to have to suffer for letting him go and uh, Ahab didn't like that. Uh, have you ever gone to your house vexed and sullen? <laughs> Did your wife ever say to you, well, what's wrong, hon? <laughs> uh, sometimes you can say or tell when things don't go like you wanted them to go. And that was true here with, uh, uh, with Ahab. Then there's another story that we're familiar with. And that's Naboth's vineyard. And one bell is already rung. So I'll stop right there. There's the second bell. Uh, stop right there. We'll take up at chapter 21, verse 1 uh, next time. In the meantime, very quickly, if there's any question or comment for anybody. All right. Excuse me. Thank you very much. Hey, Richard. Fine. Good to see you up and around again. Yes.